You're listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Crawford, coming to you from Plattsmouth, Nebraska, and Living Water Church, where we are currently going through a reading plan over the wisdom literature of Scripture. And we have just finished Ecclesiastes and are now in the book of the Song of Solomon. This is a book that's very unique from the rest of Scripture, and it's unique for several reasons, but first, because it's focused on love and sexuality. With that being said, it's probably good for you to know that as we discuss this book, there may be some things that you don't want certain ears to hear. We won't get overly graphic in this podcast, but certainly there's enough to be said even generally that you may want to hit pause and start this at another time when your innocent children aren't picking up on these adult themes. Um, The second uniqueness that we see in this book is that there's not really much mention of God. Um, There is one reference to Yahweh, and it's really a figure of speech, though. It's not to talk about him personally or to communicate anything about God theologically. And so that makes this a very unique book. And most have divided this book into three parts where there's a male singer, a female singer, and a chorus of singers. And this book is indeed a song. It's called The Song of Songs, and it matches some of the uh, ancient writings from surrounding areas of that day that also had love songs that would have various parts. And so this isn't unique uh, historically, but it does provide a unique perspective on marriage and sex that those other writings from the surrounding culture would not provide us uh, as far as a biblical look on human sexuality. Uh, and so this is not a drama. It's not a historical account even. In fact, I would advise us against reading it as a historical account. We often do that. There are many commentaries that would point you to do so, to look at the writer as Solomon. He's the man and that he finds the Shulamite woman and that's his first wife and so on and so forth. But I think there are too many inconsistencies with this depiction of romance from Solomon's actual life, his historical life. Even the accounts within the Song of Solomon itself would lead us to believe that there's a lot of hyperbole here, a lot of allegorical expression, and not really meant to be interpreted literally as an historical account. For instance, Solomon is said in the Song of Solomon, if you're taking this to be literal, that he was crowned on his wedding day by his mother. And when we read the coronation of Solomon, there's nothing about a wedding. There's nothing about his mother giving him a crown. Um, So it seems inconsistent with the historical account that we have in other parts of the Bible. Furthermore, it gives a section where Solomon is trying to get in the doorway and the woman is asleep in bed and she's already taken off her um, cloak and she's already washed her feet. She doesn't want to come and get her feet dirty. And she finally, once she sees his hand come through, she becomes very stirred and gets up to let him in. And then he's nowhere to be found. And she goes through the, the city looking for him and the guards end up attacking her, which seems very unrealistic. If this is Solomon's wife, the guards would know better, better than to attack the wife of the king. And so these are just a few examples of things that if you take this very literally as a historic account, it just doesn't add up. And so I think it's best to interpret this as a poetic expression of love. There have been some other ways that people have tried to enhance the meaning of this book uh, by, for instance, associating the love of the man with the woman to the love of God 
and his people Israel, or the love of Christ and the church. And while I do think there's some Christological um, implications for this book, I don't think necessarily that it is written and inspired solely to communicate something about Jesus in the New Testament. I think it primarily deals with marital love. And so certainly Luke 24, 27 tells us that everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and I think so does marital love. But the emphasis here is on marital love and sexuality. And I believe the primary way to view the reason and purpose of this book in its inclusion in the Old Testament canon and in the biblical canon as a whole is to view it as a book about restoration. There are many ways in which all of the books of the Bible are a testament to God's restoration. We go back to Eden and we see a perfect paradise. And when sin enters the picture, things were lost. So the presence of God was lost. So there are many books as you read you're reading about God restoring his presence. That's why he comes to Moses at Sinai. That's why he enters into a tabernacle. That's why he enters into a temple in a promised land that's very much like Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is restoration of God's presence. And there were other things that were lost, though, not just the presence of God. And so the way of thinking properly was lost. When Adam and Eve sinned, they started acting irrationally. Their brains were broken. They started to think about hiding from God. Like when they hear God, they go and hide. Well, that's irrational. That's illogical. You can't hide from God. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. You can't get away from God, but a broken brain thinks things that are irrational and continued to think irrationally. And that irrational thought and behavior just gets compounded as sin begins to permeate human existence. And so people start to do really stupid things. And people do really stupid things today because our brains are broken. It's the noetic effects of the fall. Our thinking is not proper. And so God helps remedy that by giving us wisdom literature. And so as we read through Proverbs and we read through some of the other wisdom literature, it helps us to think properly. And it gives us the antidote for irrational thinking that is a result of sin. And not only is thinking lost in the fall, not only is um, the presence of God lost in the fall, but proper relationships were lost in the fall. We see Adam and Eve suddenly turn on one another. Uh, we see Cain kill Abel, and um, there are marital issues going forward from this point on. We have a broken sexual ethic in history from the moment that sin entered the picture. So by the time Solomon writes this, sex had become a part of idolatry. There were many cultures that had orgies as a part of the worship of their gods. There were um, ideas that if you had sex with certain beings, certain people at certain times, you could please the gods. Uh, sex was weaponized at times because there were, um, we have an account in the Old Testament of Balaam convincing uh, the King Balak to send women into the camp of Israel and having them uh, commit sexual immorality in order to displease God so that God would bring a curse upon the people. And so sex was used as a weapon by that king. And sex is viewed as a commodity in many cases as women began selling their bodies and selling sex in order to profit. And so that's not the intention of sex. That's not the intention of romance and love. And so God gives us the Song of Solomon in order to bring a corrective, in order to restore sex and its purpose. 
And um, we look at the description of sexuality and love in the Song of Solomon. And one of the things that we see is a very vivid picture of fruit and growth and lush trees and grass fields with deer and uh, wildlife, just teeming streams and just everything beautiful. And it would have reminded the early Jewish audience of Eden because that's what God is depicting here. He's depicting a romance that is reflective of the intentions of marriage as made and established in the Garden of Eden. And so as you read these descriptions, you need to understand that this is what marriage is supposed to look like. This is what love is supposed to look like. And anytime it doesn't look like this, it just reveals the brokenness of our current system. It reveals the effects of sin in our own romance, in our own lives, and in our own marriages. As I read through this book, one of the things I take away is that love is supposed to be intense, and it's supposed to be passionate. It's not casual, and many of us need to be reminded of that, of the intensity of romantic love. And some of us felt that maybe at the beginning of our relationship with our significant other, but it gets lost and it is depleted over time. Um, But that's not the way it's supposed to be, according to the description here in the Song of Solomon. These two, this man and this woman, they are absolutely overwhelmed with feelings of passion and intensity. And certainly, we're not getting the whole picture. They don't have kids yet. They don't have a four-year-old puking in the corner. Those feelings probably would subside a little bit if they had something like that going on. So that's not to make you feel bad if there's ever a moment where you're not just completely overwhelmed with love and passion and uh, intensity. But I think as a general principle, this is what the, the picture of marriage should be. And she even says at one point as she's describing love, she says that she's sick with love. And the reason she's sick with love in that instance is because her lover is not present. She's looking for him. She can't find him. And so we have this description of times where the the two are together, and we have descriptions of times when they're apart. And when they're apart, they're lovesick. They want to be with one another. A husband and a wife should want to be with one another. God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so being together is ideal. Now, certainly there are times where one goes to the store, the other one stays at home. You don't have to be completely devastated by the 30-minute time apart, but there should be a general longing to be with your spouse. And that's what we see from this book. Uh, When they're together, that's when the graphic images really start to pop up because they really like being together. They spend time together in ways that are extremely graphic in this book. And there is a full depiction of the enjoyment of sexuality and the other's body. And uh, the, the senses are very much emphasized here in smells and tastes and everything else, just to give you a very general depiction of what this marriage looks like. As the woman describes the man, she often describes him as a king. And while this could be a historical reference to the man being Solomon, I think more likely this is just the way that she views this man. She views him as the king. She views him as superior to all others. Uh, If it's just a historical reference, then this really doesn't tell us anything about our own relationships because most of the women listening to this aren't married to a king. And so they can't have the same viewpoint as her. 
But what I think it's saying is that she views her man as a king. And the man here views his woman as a queen. He views her body as superior and splendid and delightful in every way. She returns the favor and her descriptions of him, everything from his neck to his eyeballs and, and everything in between. And that's just their way of expressing the value that they have for one another. And they use language of uh, the agricultural lifestyle. So describing breasts as fawns, that seems weird to us. Or telling the woman that her navel is like a rounded goblet full of wine, that doesn't always convey the same sentiments that we try to get across in our Valentine's Day cards. But for them, that was a glorious image, a, a cup that's always flowing with wine. It never goes empty. He's describing her midsection that way, just saying that this is extremely satisfying to me. And so these ways of describing one another just reveal how much they love and are fully satisfied with one another's company. Now, she makes a statement several times that I think becomes kind of a, a theme in the book because of a repetition. In chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4, the woman makes a statement that people should avoid getting stirred up until love is ready. Uh, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And I think the idea there is that since she's so miserable when she is not in the company of her lover, since her love and passion and the intensity of love is so severe, to not have her lover with her um, is to be overwhelmed with, with feelings of dissatisfaction. And so to, for a woman to awaken love before she has a lover to aim all of that intensity at, that is to be miserable all the time. And she recognizes that. And so there's a statement here that talks about the intensity of love. Even in that same chapter, just a few verses later, it says in verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. There's that reference to Yahweh. The very flame of Yahweh. That's how intense love is for this woman. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would not be utterly despised. This is how passionate and how intense um, her love is, and she doesn't wish it upon anybody to feel these feelings and not have the hope of acting upon them. And so since she has this lover, she has an outlet for expressing this intense love. Um, but for those who do not, she warns them, just don't awaken it. Don't awaken it. And in our modern context, this could be expressed by saying, don't start thinking sexually until you have a marriage partner with whom you can express these things. The final thing I'll say about this passage is looking back at the idea of Christology. Is this describing Christ in any way? Do, do we look in here and find Jesus in the text? Well, here's how I think that we need to draw our Christological implications from this book. If this book is describing the way that marriage is supposed to be, if this book is giving us a, a depiction of a restored marriage, fashioned after the intentions of marriage established in Eden. If that's what we get in this book, 
then when the New Testament says that marriage is supposed to symbolize Christ and the church, if husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church, like we see in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, if we're reading that and we know that marriage's purpose is to show us the relationship between Jesus and his church, then we know that a restored marriage going all the way back to Eden, if it looks like the marriage in Eden, then it best reflects the picture of Christ and the church. Obviously, a broken marriage where the husband can't stand the woman, the woman can't stand the man, they like to be apart, they value time far away from one another, that doesn't reflect the image of Jesus and his church. People of the church should want to be with their Jesus. Jesus wants to be with his people. And so if your marriage doesn't look like that, if time together is not valued, if there's not an intensity there of desiring the other and to intimately walking with the other, if that's not there, then you're not reflecting Jesus the way that Jesus was meant to be reflected. And I think that's the takeaway that we can get when we look at the book of Song of Solomon and apply it in a Christological sense. We're going to stop there for today, and we'll pick up next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.